Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Welcome, my name is Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devisich. How you going Mark? Going well, looking forward to the November updates in the portfolio. How about you? Busy. We've been scrapping hard for every basis point of performance in October. Since we've been busy with quarterly updates, this will be a compressed episode. Markets pulled back in October. Do you want to share your thoughts on how things went? Yes, October was a difficult month for the fund and markets globally. We were not immune, suffering for some poor stock execution and not selling fast enough and a general risk off sentiment pulling back stock market valuations. Overall, it is an opportune time to be deploying capital. Our benchmark is now firmly down since we started the fund and has been depressed since late 2021. History has proven that investing when sentiment is poor and outlooks are gloomy provides the best future return. The Founders Fund was down 4.3% versus our benchmark, the ASX Small Awards Accumulation Index, down 4.2% in Kiwi dollar terms. Since inception, the Founders Fund is up 38.2% versus the benchmark, now down 3.4% in NZD terms. So starting with some positive news, do you want to talk to one of the companies which had a positive update during the month? A number of companies provided positive updates during the month. One of those was Hub24. We've covered Hub and Pods, so we'll keep this one short. As a reminder, Hub's an Australian investment and superannuation platform. Hub's platform provides financial advisors with the tools they need to onboard, manage and report to their clients. From just 0.2% market share in 2015, Hub has grown to 6.3% market share today. Hub has two key quarterly metrics. One, the net fund flow onto the platform and two, advisors joining the platform. Let's tackle both. In terms of net inflows, Hub provided a powerful update, especially in the context of updates provided from other listed platform providers. Net inflows of $2.8 billion were ahead of market expectations of $2.4 billion and a strong improvement of two, on $2.1 billion in the prior quarter. These inflows were driven by broad-based recovery and advisor activity. Hub's net inflow growth in the prior quarters was impacted by advisors investors moving money off-platform and into term deposits. Pleasingly, this trend appeared to slow for Hub as outflows declined as a percentage of gross inflows for the first time in a year. That brings us to the second key metric, advisors. This was more mixed. While Hub only added 11 new advisors in the quarter, it signed 41 new licensee distribution agreements. This is a record number and a strong lead indicator for future advisor ads in the coming quarters. It's important to note that Hub's update wasn't all positive. On the negative side, Hub announced a slight push to the right with the EQT transition. EQT is set to transition $4 billion to Hub with about 3.2 to 3.5 expected in FY24 and the balance in FY25. Hub announced that due to delays at EQT's end, this first transition is now expected in March 23. Hub was quick to reassure investors that the slippage in timing doesn't impact the flows expected in FY24, but we'd be surprised if they didn't. You had some interesting thoughts on the net wealth update, which was also out during the month. Yes, the relative strength of Hub's update was put into perspective by NetWealth's update. NetWealth is the other leading independent platform provider alongside Hub24. NetWealth reported net inflows of $2 billion, while gross inflows were strong, up 15% year-on-year. 
And net wealth continues to be impacted by the ongoing trend of advisors shifting money off platform into term deposits. Net wealth is disproportionately impacted by this trend compared to Hub due to its higher mix of high net worth clients versus Hub, which has a higher mix to the sticky superannuation money. Net wealth inflows were also lower margin versus Hub. Net wealth flows have been skewed to these larger accounts, with more than half of the quarter's 2.7 billion in gross inflows relating to accounts that are above the 2.5 million admin fee cap, so they're not earning money on these. The off-platform TD trend may be arrested by the soon-to-be-launched functionality for advisors to opt out of earning advice fees on TD, cash, and annuities. However, given the relative outperformance of Hub, investors appear to be taking a believe it when we see it approach here. The final point is that investors would be worried about what NetWealth's run rate is. Both NetWealth and Hub provided FUM updates at their results in August, so roughly halfway through the quarter. At the time, they were both had roughly the same amount of inflows for the quarter, but Hub ended at $2.8 billion versus NetWealth at $2 billion. We had two main detractors during the month. Do you want to touch on one? Yes. The Tyro fell significantly during the month. Firstly, from a negative research report, and secondly, an underwhelming investor day. So what did Tyro do? Well, Tyro is a payment processing business in Australia. Outside of the big four banks, it is the largest provider of payment terminals in the Australian market. Their business model is renting out these terminals to merchants, typically in the hospitality, retail, and healthcare industries, and they process the payments that go through those terminals. They earn a rental fee, but the majority of their revenue comes from taking a small clip of the ticket and processing the payment volumes. This averages around 90 basis points. It is highest for smaller merchants and, and lower for the high volume larger merchants. Tyro makes a gross profit margin of nearly 50% on these volumes if you include the terminal rental. So let's run Tyro through the 4Ps framework. So the 4Ps as a reminder is predictability, potential, people and profitability. Let's start with potential. There's still a lot of opportunity for Tyro to take share away from the banks who, unlike New Zealand, dominate the terminal market. A number of global payment companies like Adyen, Square and Lightspeed can also see, who can also see this potential have entered the market. Second, predictability. Tyro earned a clip of the ticket on what's spent, so revenue is fairly predictable and inflation is a tailwind. What is more uncertain is the growth in merchants and the churn rate from existing merchants closing or choosing to use a different provider as opposed to Tyro. Thirdly, profitability. The new CEO has implemented price rises and cost out to improve earnings. Tyro upgraded earnings four times in FY23, and FY24 was initially set up with a profit guidance range that we thought that they could beat. Finally, people. Tyro has a new CEO and a new chairman. The new CEO, John Davey, is steady the ship and is well regarded, although the share price doesn't feel like that. Mark, do you want to talk to why Tyro fell so much during the month? Yeah, Tyro fell firstly from a negative research report, which quantified the potential loss of a, a wholesale channel partner called Lightspeed, and they're also listed in Canada. Lightspeed own a number of point-of-sale um, software providers in the retail and hospitality segments in Australia. This is a structural threat, as more of these uh, POS providers are looking to vertically integrate into payments to increase their revenue opportunity, or partner with other global payment providers like Adyen, who may offer a greater share of the payment economics. Unfortunately, management haven't given any clear answers for how they can counteract this threat from the POS providers vertically integrating into payments themselves, apart from providing a solution that will enable them to do so. 
The second event was Tyro's widely anticipated Investor Day, which was a bit of a damp squid in terms of updates. Many were expecting that Tyro would announce they'd give back their banking license and also potentially outsource their payment switch, which could potentially save Tyro a significant amount of money. However, the presentation suggested that neither of these options were on the table or being pursued, and there were not adequate cost savings in pursuing them. This was disappointing to many investors who were set up for this event being a catalyst. On the positive side, Tyro demonstrated they have deep payments expertise in the healthcare vertical, which is growing quickly and more resilient to weakness in the broader economy. So what was our investment proposition with Tyro? The original thesis was pretty simple, that the guidance of 52 to 58 million EBITDA this year was conservative. Tyro was set to benefit from improved gross margin from price increases, higher interest income on customer cash balances, higher, the rollout of higher margin products such as a zero cost FPROS solution similar to SmartPay, and finally a flat cost base. We believe the earnings upside could prove a catalyst to the already depressed share price which had fallen from $4.52 years ago to $1.20. The economic environment means that there's more risk to the short-term thesis due to a lower transaction value particularly in the retail and hospitality channels. There could also be heightened churn amongst the more profitable merchants who are potentially being replaced by additions of more micro-merchants. So what's the outlook from here? Well, Tyro is tra trading at a cheap valuation. Its EV to revenue is just 0.9 times versus 7 times just 3 years ago. And it's trading around 8 times EBITDA earnings this year, so arguably cheap. However, Tyro has moved from an earnings upgrade story to the more challenging medium-term landscape now being at the front of mind for investors. Payments is traditionally a graveyard as pricing only goes down over time and payment processes have provided have proved not to have significant differentiation or switching costs. The economics have accrued to the, the two networks, Visa and MasterCard. In more recent times, in the last six months, payments companies have fallen on even harder times as payment heavyweight Adyen is down 55%, Square or Block is down 35%, and Worldline is down 69%. We have reduced our position significantly in the last few months, but a little too late. The economic moat appears to be shrinking, not widening. What's the lesson here? Don't buy my outing ice cubes. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards from the ASX this month. I'll kick things off with a leader. That leader is Volpara Health Technologies. In a challenging month for the Small Ordinaries Index, which was down 5.5%, Volpara bucked the trend, finishing up 1% after it reported its fourth consecutive positive cash flow quarter, which was a full year and a half ahead of guidance. So what does Volpara do? Volpara is a medical software company focused on the early detection of breast cancer. Volpara utilizes technology developed by co-founder Ralph Hyman to provide objective data on breast tissue density, a key risk marker for breast cancer. Research has shown a strong association between breast density and breast cancer risk. Breast cancers are more difficult to detect in dense tissue. Whilst a radiologist can perform an assessment of breast density, Volpara's software is cost-effective, efficient and consistent across millions of patient assessments every year. Based in New Zealand, Volpara's principal operations are in the lucrative US market. So let's provide a bit of background. Volpara listed on the ASX in 2016 at 50 cents, with 2.6 million of revenue, a loss of 4.5 million EBIT and a market cap of 61 million. From 2016 to 2020, Volpara was a medtech darling. 
on the back of rapid organic growth and a series of equity-funded acquisitions, Volparo's share price reached the giddy heights of $1.80 and a market cap of $380 million in early 2020. However, with just $12.6 million of revenue and losing $20 million a year, Volparo was priced for, for perfection. The end of the zero-rate party from November 2021 meant that by April 2022, Volparo was back trading at $0.70. Cents. At this point, the board announced a reshuffle, with Ralph moving to Chief Science Officer and current CEO Terry Thomas being appointed as the CEO from Epic. Terry's appointment was followed by a strategic pivot in July as Volparo announced that it would cut costs and drive towards profitable growth with cash flow break-even targeted for FY24. That brings us sort of to the present. Do you want to talk us through the bull case? Yes. Well, Pyrotex, many of the four Ps here, has plenty of potential. The US market has 39 million screens per year, and importantly, breast density screening is becoming the standard of care. In April, the FDA announced from September 24, all women in their mammogram results are required to be informed of their breast density. Volpara is the market leader in breast density screening, and at the same time, the National Accreditation Program for Breast Centres, which sets the standards in the US, has mandated that all breast screening centres have a risk program in place. So what's that worth? Well, Volpara has talked around a value of $10 per screen, which would create a market potential of $390 million US dollars. Volpara also has 42% of the 39 million scans covered with at least one of its products. However, in FY23, it only had US scan revenue of 19.8 million. From the initial analytics product, Volpara has expanded its offering to include Patient Hub and Risk Pathways. The opportunity ahead for Volpara is to keep taking share while cross-selling additional products into its existing customer base. Its success executing on the strategy was demonstrated in financial year 23, with revenues up 34% and contract wins with well-respected and leading healthcare providers in the US such as Mercy Health and Adventist Health. Volpara's revenue is both highly predictable and defensive. Over 95% is on recurring long-term five-year contracts. And more importantly, Volpara is inflecting through profitability. It's already cash flow positive and it's guided in FY24 to EBITDA of half a million to negative two million versus the 6.1 million loss in FY23. This is demonstrating Volpara's strong incremental profit margins. Finally, there's strong alignment. Ralph Hyman is a significant shareholder, the founder, while Terry Thomas has done an incredible job of reorientating the business towards a disciplined growth business. What are your thoughts on this, Chris? Well, let me balance out the bull case with a few thoughts. Volpara's potential is an interesting one. Volpara's strategic pivot in July 2022 involved two aspects. One, going after large elephant accounts, and two, shifting from talking about an average revenue per screen to an average revenue per account. The strategy of winning large accounts is working, with Volpara's market share increasing from 35.5% in 2022 to 42% of all scans in the US in FY23. That's really positive. However, what is it having to discount to win? Its average revenue per scan over that period only increased 2% from $1.18 to $1.21. CPI-based pricing increases were higher than 2%, so clearly there's been some bundled discounting going on. You might say, so what? It's a land grab where you win the market first. In the short term, it might look good, but at 42% market share, you can't keep winning 6% per year for very long. At the same time, 
you're locking up large parts of the market at low pricing based on five-year deals. Once a customer pays a dollar, it's probably likely to difficult to get them to take large leaps in incremental pricing from there. That calls into question, is the market potential actually 390 million US dollars? Two other points to consider. First, is Epic a threat or an opportunity? Epic Systems is a healthcare software company which is fast becoming the dominant provider of electronic healthcare records for hospitals and large practices in the US. Epic is currently a source of churn as customers installing Epic displace Volpara's MRS offering. Volpara needs to find a way to reintegrate with Epic or face further churn in the future. Finally, expectations. Analyst profit forecasts imply about 20% revenue growth per annum out to 2027, but only 2% cost growth per annum over the same period. Base rates suggest that's overly optimistic. More likely, Volpara needs to grow beyond mammography. That will require investment, which could be tricky if it's driving harder profitability. Overall management have done a fantastic job of pivoting Volpara into a growing and profitable medtech business with a robust balance sheet and plenty of optionality. Whilst consensus medium-term profit forecasts are looking optimistic, they typically are for medtech companies. Trading at 70 cents the next seven years certainly looks brighter than the first seven. Volpara was our leader this month. What sort of laggard have you got for us? A laggard during the month was Credit Corp. Credit Corp issued a downgrade and asset impairment during the month, causing the share price to fall 33% from $18 to $12. And this had furthered the slide from $23 in late July, just prior to them reporting their full year result. With the base rates on small cap financials succeeding, is about as successful as the All Blacks trying to win a Rugby World Cup with 14 men. Now let's have a look into the Credit Corp business model. Well, Credit Corp's core business is buying and collecting debt. The typical debt they buy is credit card debt that's 180 days past due from the banks. They then collect on that debt and the unit economics are they buy a dollar of face value of debt at around 10 to 15 cents on the dollar and they collect roughly two and a half times what they paid for it. So 25 cents over a period of six years and this achieves IRRs of 15 plus percent after collection costs. Credit Corp have a dominant position in the mature Australian market. They've been growing strongly in the large US market, and they also have an unsecured consumer lending business in Australia called Wallet Wizard. And that division has been providing the earnings growth in recent years. Their business is like a fund manager. They value debt based on their assessment of the earnings they can derive, and they only pay a price that will deliver an acceptable IRR of 15 plus percent. So Chris, what was the cause of the downgrade? The cause of the downgrade was poor collections in the US. Counterintuitively, in tougher economic times, people would rightly think a debt collector should perform well. However, what has tripped up Credit Corp was that they purchased a large amount of debt at high prices in 2022. They also didn't collect well on that debt as they didn't have enough suitable collection staff. Since economic conditions have deteriorated, it has become more difficult to collect from borrowers. The original assumption of how much they would collect had to be revised down, necessitating a $45 million after-tax write-off from the value of the purchase debt ledgers that they brought. At the full-year result in August, they planted the seed that they had been seeing slowing collections in the final quarter of the financial year in the US. The recent update was just a confirmation that those conditions had continued into the first quarter. Is there any ray of light here? 
Turning to Criticore prior to the ground downgrade, they observed recently that prices had fallen significantly and have continued to do so. This is a reflection that there is more overdue debt available in the US market. Outstanding US revolving credit is at record high levels in the US and it's approximately 10% higher than pre-COVID at 1.22 trillion US dollars and delinquencies are increasing. Therefore, with more supply out there and a tougher collection environment, this means prices have fallen to attractive levels. Just at the time when Credit Court should be ramping up their purchases in the US, they have given a downgrade based on their US operations. This will not give the market much confidence in them to put the foot down further on the US opportunity. The problems don't seem to be isolated to Credit Court though. The two dominant US players, PRA and Encore, are also listed on the NASDAQ stock market and in their latest quarterly re results they reported re recoveries below forecasts which in hindsight was an ominous sign of things to come for Credit Court. These two stocks are also down 37 and 22% respectively in the last month on no news. And they'll be both reporting results over the next few days. So where to from here? The best time to buy debt collection companies is in the late part of an economic downturn as debt is priced for the tough collection environment. Typically, those two tough conditions don't last forever and collections improve as the economy recovers. Last credit cycle, Credit Court went from a low of under 50 cents in 2008 to nearly $40 in 2020, a gain of 80 times which shows the leverage in the model. The Australian consumer lending business is performing well and generating strong cash flows. The Australian debt collection business on the other hand is slowly shrinking as credit card balances have been in structural decline for some time in Australia as consumers shun unsecured credit meaning there has been less debt to buy. On balance, the outlook should improve. Supply of debt is increasing and prices are attractive, meaning Credit Corp should be in a great position to ramp up purchases, setting them up for a positive two to three years ahead. The US business issues are not structural. However, they do need to improve the asset turns in the US business, which is the ratio of collections to debt book value. They are well below where they need to be at approximately 0.5 times, when they should really be above one times as they are in Australia. So what's it worth? Well, Credit Corp has been listed since 2000, so there is a bit of history here. At its peak, it's traded at nine times book value in June 2007, just before the global financial crisis. Its average price to book since listing has been 3.2 times and reached a low of 0.3 times in December 2008. Currently, it's at only one times price to book. Even if it traded at half its recent pre-COVID multiples of three to four times, that would imply 50 to 100% upside from here. Right, that's it. Let's wrap it there. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have any follow-up, you can contact us at info at discoveryfunds.co.nz. Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.